before I got here. Just didn't plan right. We're studying social ethics, finishing it up this week, and thus far we have um, looked at the question of Christ and culture. And under that unit we studied uh, the implicit battle between humanism and theism for the direction of culture. Uh, and we've studied the attitudes which many Christians have held um, about the relationship of Christ to culture. Uh, I argued for the necessity of a transformational view of Christ's relationship to culture. And we looked at the question of the relationship of the cultural mandate to the uh, evangelistic mandate. And then finally, the um, question of what the standard of social morality should be. And I argued that it would have to be the law of God, even as the standard of private morality is the law of God. And last week, we took up the question of church and state. I tried to lay out for you what I think that separation properly means, the separation between church and state, and argued that the Old Testament and the New Testament have the same doctrine of the separation of church and state, and that the concept of, of a theocracy, where you see a theocracy as um, the laws of God being the laws of the land, is a proper concept. The, front, uh, the concept of a Christian state is a proper concept over against secularism and autonomy. I argued that there should not be an establishment of religion or a church-dominated state, however, and nevertheless, uh, politics is a proper subject for the pulpit. The mistake you see in the social gospel is not that it's social, but it, that it's not biblical. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about social matters, and uh, we ought to preach them, uh, that matter. Then the enforcement of morality was taken up after our break last week, the whole question of rights and civil rights and whether homosexuality should be a civil right was the subject we took up. And then at the very end of our hour, the question of distributive justice, whether charity ought to be enforced by the sword of the state. I argued that it ought not to be. Uh, now, all of these are extremely um, complicated and debated uh, subjects, and I realize we haven't given them their due by flying over the subject as quick as we have, but when you're only studying ethics once a week and uh, only, what, about 30 hours altogether, that's about all we can do. Tonight we take up the question of the sword. Yes? Consider this thing a word or two about the last topic you talked about, about, um, about the state and whether the state should force it to be charitable. Um, where you left me was that, that um, the state forcing us to be charitable and we were slaves of the our neighbors perhaps right but but i take it i brought someone told me that, that you do condone or you do think that we should pay taxes so how do you yes um how do you, you take me that step to where we should we tell me why we should pay taxes then? yes Uh, turning your Bibles to Romans, the 13th chapter. Paul says at verses 6 and 7, For this cause you also pay tribute. For what cause? Well, in verse 5 it said, Wherefore you must needs be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So in view of the punishment that will follow if you don't, 
submit to the civil authorities, and for conscience sake, you must remember to do these things. For this cause, pay tribute also, for they are ministers of God's service, attending continually upon this very thing. Magistrates are called into the very service of God, and therefore we owe it to them to support financially their service in God's kingdom. Render to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so Paul says, if tribute is owed, tribute is to be paid. Jesus in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, um, when asked the very question that you've asked me, whether we ought to pay our taxes, whether it's lawful for Caesar to demand of us, Jesus said, whose image is on the coin? As long as it's Caesar's image, or George Washington, or whoever is on your coin, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, we must bear in mind that that doesn't give the state leeway to do just whatever it wants to. I mean, the fact that we have to be submissive and give back to it, it's legal tender, which is what Jesus is saying, shouldn't make us blind to the fact that the image of God is on all of us. Okay, remember Jesus said, whose image is on the coin? Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, where's God's image? On everybody, including the magistrate. So render to God the things that are God's. That is, all of life belongs to God in submission to him as well. Uh, and my, my own feeling, since you brought up the subject um, about tax evasion and tax revolt, uh, and this is a person, one man's opinion sort of thing. Keep that in mind. I'm not preaching from the pulpit, thus saith the Lord, but it is at least my conviction upon some limited study of the subject that the only time we have the right to engage in tax evasion and tax uh, revolt is when, in fact, we've declared war upon the government. Because no man owes tribute to a government that's not his own. And when we can engage in lawful revolution, just revolution, or just war, which is really the same thing, uh, then we can refuse tribute, just as we would refuse tribute to, say, uh, the king of France or the, the queen of England. See what I'm getting at? But what doesn't seem legitimate to me is partial revolution. And that's what it amounts to when you say, I'm only going to pay a portion of my tax. See, I know people who say, uh, according to uh, published um, economic accounts or uh, the published budget of the U.S. government, uh, such and such a percentage goes toward uh, health, education, and welfare, of which a certain percentage goes for paying for abortion. I'm against murder, and I am too, but so this person says, I'm against murder, which is, that's what abortion is, that percentage I will not pay. That doesn't seem to me that's legitimate. Now, the day may come, and this is where probably some, some well-meaning Christian brothers might disagree with me, I think the day could come where, for that single issue of abortion alone, we may have to be in revolt against the government. Just as I think if there were nothing else that Hitler was doing but killing Jews, that would have eventually legitimated, after every legal recourse was taken, a just revolution. Uh, I have, I believe, as high a, standard of high, uh, high a standard of just revolution as anybody that I've read. I mean, the conditions have to be very stringently met, where there is no legal recourse, where all avenues have been pursued, so forth and so on. But I could see the day coming where, because of abortion, we might engage in a just revolution. Um, but short of that, it doesn't seem to me you can say, well, I'm going to be in submission to the government 89%, and 11% I'm not. Or I'm going to be in submission to the government in that I'll follow the traffic laws, and uh, if I'm caught stealing or killing, I'll go through all those procedures, but I'm not going to pay my taxes. See, taxes are part of submission, and the only time you don't pay taxes is when it comes to the point where you don't owe your submission to the government. 
and um, consequently I believe we ought to pay our taxes. But then you'll say, our taxes are being used for things which we don't believe they ought to be used for. All right, all along when we've been talking about social ethics, I've been talking about, you know, to the degree that I've been biblical, and I, and I hope that's a high degree, uh, but to whatever degree I've been biblical, I've been talking about the ideal. And I don't mean ideal in the unrealistic sense. People say, well, yeah, that's very idealistic, but politics is a matter of compromise and reality. I mean, I'm talking about the standard God establishes, and we should do everything we can to approximate that standard or to actualize that standard. Okay, to the degree that's possible, I'm trying to actualize that standard by teaching this course, for instance. Now, the only thing I want to do, you know, tax uh, uh, revision, but that's one of the things I'd hope that we have uh, 30, 40 people who believe in or at least start thinking about, and they'll influence their families and friends and um, so forth and so on. And hopefully, as we vote for people and this, that, and the other, we're going to come closer and closer to what the government ought to be doing with tax money. Uh, it's not doing that now, and I want to see reformation brought here but I don't want to see revolution until it comes to such a point of injustice without recourse that uh, godly men have no other alternative. And one final note about this, I think it's valuable, although it may be a little simplistic, it's valuable to remember the distinction between the government following, the government asking us to do that which goes beyond the scriptures, works of supererogation, if you will, and the government asking us to do those things which go against the scriptures. Okay. Now, obviously, those of you who are logically sharp are going to see that that is not going to be a watertight breakdown. But when the government says, we will make you be charitable, of course, it's not charity when it's forced, is it? God loves a cheerful giver. Um, but when the government makes us be charitable toward the poor, it is overstepping its bounds, but it is not making us violate the law of God ourselves as if the government came and told me I must stop preaching the gospel or I must commit adultery or I must kill innocent people or something like that. So we pay our taxes until that day in which we believe we ought to revolt. Now, Lord willing, that will never come, um, but throughout history it has from time to time. And at that point, I believe tax revolt is legitimate. But short of that, I don't. Is there a biblical standard as to how much taxes the government can Greg, that's an exegetical question where there'd be difference of opinion. Uh, it has been argued from, and I uh, unfortunately can't remember the exact passage in 1 Samuel, when uh, Israel asked for a king like the king round about her, uh, uh, like the kings of the pagan nations, God um, spoke uh, a prophetic word of curse that when you have such a king, the following will happen. He'll take your sons, he'll tax you in this way and that and so forth. And from that passage, people like uh, Mr. Rushdoony have deduced that uh, God deems it a curse and therefore um, uh, his judgment would fall upon it. thinks it's immoral and oppressive for taxes to reach that level. Um, and I think that's worthy of consideration, although that is certainly far short of a, of a law that says, Thou shalt or thou shalt not. In other words, it doesn't have the clarity of the case law and so forth. It's a historical example from which we are inferring that God would not have governments taxed more than that. However, Mr. Rushdoony is, uh, I would, I am sure he would agree with what I just told you about tax revolt as well, does not believe in evading paying our taxes. But um, were he the President of the United States, he might be doing something to make sure that our tax structure got down below that, that level. And he may be motivated on the basis of the Word of God to think that it ought to be below that. Whether it would be immoral for somebody else to, say, tack on three or five percentage points above that, 
is a tough question. I'm not willing to defend that as being a norm for all governments, but I'm teachable on the subject. I think you'd probably find that if Mr. Rush Dooney could do what he wanted to in terms of limiting our government, you'd probably have popular support totally apart from what the Bible said. <coughs> People are getting pretty fed up with their taxes, I get the impression. Well, if, if there isn't anything real exclusive, then uh, what, uh, what would somebody who's a Christian uh, and becomes uh, a president, uh, how would he try to figure out what would be Okay, well now, I didn't mean to say there was no instruction, but uh, as to a, uh, a level beyond which the government cannot go, it doesn't seem to me the scripture gives any clear word on that. But there is some clear guidance. Let me give you an example. The scriptures require us to tithe, okay? Now, tithe is somewhere between 15, uh, 13 and 15 percent probably when you look at all the Old Testament tithes. Most people think of it as 10 uh, so let's use that as our standard. If a tithe is 10%, then it would be immoral for the government to tax us 91% of our income, wouldn't it? Because to the degree they do that, it becomes impossible to, to fulfill my obligation to God. Moreover, the Bible says a man who does not care for his own, does not financially support his family, is worse than an infidel. So in addition to that 10 or 13 or 15%, you've got to add whatever is the minimal amount for taking care of your family. Now, that's, you see, where a lot of fluctuation comes in. There'll be a lot of difference of opinion. And maybe from region to region, there would be a difference um, in the cost of living, that sort of thing. And so we can at least say this, that when the government taxes us, shall we say, above 70%, uh, that, that allows us 20% to take care of our family and 10% to fulfill our obligation to God. I, would anybody think that's being excessive or, you know, fudging a bit? If the government taxes us above 70%, I think Christians could cry out and say, now, wait a minute. We do owe it to God, first of all, that we take care of our families and take care of the church, as he told us to. Uh, and, I, and I tend to think that that 70 could probably be lowered a bit. All right? So there is some guidance uh, Scripture could give us. By the way, that isn't totally unrealistic. I don't know anybody in this room that faces this problem, but do you realize that there are people in this country who do pay in excess of 70% of their money to the government? Do we as Christians think that's right? You know what the usual answer is to that? Well, yeah, but even if they only get 2% for their own pocketbook, what they get is so much anyway that their 2% is plenty to, to take care of themselves. In other words, it's all right with me if you go and plunder this guy because, after all, he's rich. But don't do it to me. I'm not so sure that's a Christian attitude, but I hear it often enough. Um, so there is some guideline. Uh, oh, yeah, now how positively should... It, it, okay, <laughs> heretical hypothetical. What if I were the President of the United States? <laughs> what if? Um, what would I do? It seems to me that I should uh, decide... Now, of course, becoming... I, I don't want to be so simplistic as to give you the wrong ideals. A person who is the President of the United States does not get his way automatically. You may have noticed that. Okay, presidents aren't kings. At least they're not supposed to be. And um, so becoming the president wouldn't mean that the Congress would reform its laws uh, uh, in conformity with my thoughts. But, all right, theoretical hypothetical, if I'm president, and then the idealistic hypothetical, and the Congress did whatever I told them, I suppose what I would do is compute what the legitimate expenses of government would be, all right, uh, uh, for policing, defense, <coughs> so forth and so on. Um, and by legitimate expenses, I'm not talking about the three martini lunches and you know, all the rest that goes with the Washington scene. 
Uh, but I mean, just to the bone, strictly speaking, what government ought to be doing, what it can be expected to cost, um, uh, getting rid of those people who are on uh, salary of the federal government that aren't really doing any work, so forth and so on. Okay. Proper fiscal management seems to me uh, calls for that kind of estimate. And then what you do is you you find out about how many tax-paying families you have, how many heads of households you have, and you divide it up, and you get somewhere close to what uh, the bill ought to be. By the way, when you do that, it's going to be within range of anybody who is not at the poverty level to do. And then I suppose we could make exceptions for those who can't take care of their family if they are taxed $50 a year or something like that. Taxes would really be low. I mean, I think you might, you would stagger to see the figures. If we were only taking care of the minimal needs of justice, defense, and so forth, your taxes would be well within what you think is legitimate. The problem is you're paying for every wild-eyed social scheme that anybody's ever dreamt of right now. And that's very expensive to pay for men's dreams. Ted? Do you see it unjust uh, to have a graduated income tax? I believe it is unjust to have a graduated income tax. Um, I was, again, a, a lot of things I'm assuming when I answer these questions, and I oughtn't to do that. The reason I said I would see how many tax-paying people you have and how much the taxes, what the total bill for the government would be, and, and roughly divide it that way, is because I don't believe that the Bible, when it lays down, well, I believe that the Bible lays down certain laws with respect to taxation, even though it does not give a percentage beyond which the government can go. It says the poor shall not pay less or the rich more with respect to the, to the taxes of the Old Testament. And I think that's a legitimate uh, standard because there should be no respect of persons. I, I basically believe in the principle of a head tax, as those who are the responsible members of the community ought to pay for the community services, by which I mean defense and justice and the police and um, salary of the uh, legitimate officials and that sort of thing. So graduated income tax it strikes me as something that if we can, I'm not talking about tax revolt, I hope everybody remember that, to the degree that we can reform the laws, I think we ought to reform them to get away from the graduation of the tax. Right? When you speak of graduated income tax, do you mean, as, as I think of graduated, I mean, as you go up, you get a greater percentage. That's right. Now, there's also head tax, which you're talking about, which is a certain amount per person, you know, flat, flat rate, and then there's also a certain percentage per person, regardless, you know, flat, flat percentage. You could do it either way, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose a certain percentage of one's income um, would would tend to be more equitable in that uh, uh, the poor don't end up paying less and the and the, um, and the rich paying more. Um, that's straight line financing, it seems to me. Uh, but I mean, that's that's the sort of thing open for discussion. Let me get on to some things I can be a little more dogmatic about. <laughs> Okay, we talked about Christ and culture, church and state, and if you follow what I've been saying in these two long units, uh, then, in essence, the power of the government, which is not all of social ethics, mind you, but now we're going to look especially at the power of the government. power of the government is tied up with the use of the sword, for the most part. It's a matter of punishing criminals and, uh, and going to war. And so what I want to talk about now um, are the subjects of penology and warfare. First of all, the subject of penology. And what I'm going to be discussing tonight um, for a while is, is the question of legal punishment, and I need to define what legal punishment is. Um, first of all, what it is not. Legal punishment has nothing to do with a man's motives or his character. All right? Moral punishment does. 
God will punish a man with respect to his motives, with respect to his character, whether he, he sought the kingdom of God, whether he was a loving individual and faithful and all the rest. However, the civil magistrate does not. Of course, the civil magistrate cannot either. I mean, it makes sense that he ought not because he can't tell what a man's motives are in character in a way that is, um, is just. So motives and character are indifferent to legal guilt and criminal liability. Secondly, notice that the design of a legal system, that is, if we're going to have a system of laws, the design of that legal system is to guide the external conduct and interpersonal relations of people by laying down public rules to guard their rights and attaching penal sanctions to them. Rules pertaining to external conduct, and those rules must have penal sanctions. If you have a rule, quote-unquote, a rule, without a penal sanction, what are you left with? Well, but a moral rule has a penal sanction, too. It's just that it's not in history that it's exacted, necessarily. You have advice. When somebody says, you ought to do so-and-so, but I'm in no position to punish you if you don't, or I don't intend to, then it's advice. But a legal system calls for rules with sanctions. We sanction the legitimacy of the rule by punishing those who break them. Okay. Motives and character are indifferent. Legal system lays down rules for external conduct, attaching penal sanctions to them. Now, finally, by way of punishment, we must remember that whatever we call a punishment must be very unpleasant in itself. Now, it must be very unpleasant, because if it's not, then you'll have people who will take the calculated risk and do it anyway. Or, on the other hand, let's say if the, uh, if the um, punishment for being drunk in public is spending uh, 30 days in the uh, county jail, you will find... Inevitably, that during the winter time, tramps will get drunk in public. You understand? Because that's not punishment for them to be given a warm place that they wouldn't ordinarily have in a bed to sleep in, as uncomfortable as it may be. So it must be very unpleasant, and it must be very unpleasant in itself. You see, uh, a dentist drilling your teeth is not punishing you. Now, you may speak metaphorically about being punished when you went to the dentist, but. Uh, that is not really, uh, in itself, the punishment. That's just the accidental accompaniment to it. And this punishment must be deliberately and it must be personally imposed. It can't be a natural consequence. Legal punishment doesn't have to do with hangovers, okay? You get drunk, you get a hangover. That's not really punishment. Punishment is when something is deliberately and personally imposed of a very unpleasant nature in itself. And it must be imposed by an agent authorized by the system of those pre-established rules. Uh, it cannot be um, done by a lynch mob. That isn't punishment, you see, when a vigilante committee comes around to take its own quote-unquote justice. And it may not be ex post facto. It's not punishment when a man suffers for a deed that he committed before it was illegal. Okay? What's punishment? Punishment is very unpleasant in itself, deliberately and personally imposed, by an agent authorized by a system of pre-established rules. <coughs> yeah, okay, now that we all know what we're talking about, my point is that such punishment calls for a justification as we study it morally. There must be a moral justification for punishment. Because if there is no moral justification for punishment, then you cannot distinguish crime from punishment. Without a moral justification, there's no difference between kidnapping and imprisonment. No difference between finding a person and stealing from him. No difference between executing a person and murdering him. You see, that which makes it, uh, that which 
marks the distinction between a crime and a punishment is just that one is morally justified. There must be a moral justification for the punishment that is inflicted on people. Because if you don't have that, then what uh, you end up with is that the stronger, uh, a group of stronger people end up perpetrating crimes against a group or individuals who are weaker than them. And that's, you all remember, of course, the argument of Thrasymachus and Plato's Republic. You probably were reading it just last week. <coughs> Thrasymachus said, of, of course, he is the, the person who um, classically argued that uh, might makes right. And he said, justice is really what serves the interests of the stronger. Well, unless you want to avoid a society like Thrasymachus was speaking of, then you must have a justification for punishment. Okay? How do you justify a penal system of inflicting pain and deprivation? With all this introduction, now the question to be considered, how do you justify a penal system of inflicting pain and deprivation? And I want to speak very quickly of three approaches to penology. First of all, you have what I'm going to call the utilitarian approach. Utilitarianism, remember, weighs the merits of an action on the basis of its consequences. The utilitarian approach to penology therefore says that punishment is justified only when it has beneficial consequences which outweigh the intrinsic evil of inflicting suffering on human beings. Or if you will, the justification of punishment is always future looking. We're always looking to the future for those anticipated consequences to justify what we have done. Now there are three basic schools of utilitarian penology. Am I going too fast? Everybody with me? You'll be familiar with these three schools. You may not have categorized it in this way, but I think it'll help you to remember them. There is the view that the consequence we're looking for is the reformation of the criminal. We punish in order to reform the criminal. Secondly, there's a school that says we punish to deter others from committing these offenses, the deterrent view of penology. And then thirdly, uh, the quarantine view of punishment, we punish him to prevent his own future misdeeds. That is, you quarantine or imprison somebody so that he's not out in society to, uh, to uh, uh, commit further criminal acts. So, utilitarian approaches are for reformation, deterrence, or quarantine. Now, before I criticize these three approaches, these three utilitarian approaches to penology, notice that um, few people today have delusions about the reformation and deterrence views of punishment. I realize that there's been a lot of, there's popular hoopla about that sort of thing, and you'll get people standing up for their rights and writing to their editors about it still, but I'm talking about in the scholarly literature today, there's very little discussion of this sort of thing, because over the last 30 to 40 years, we've had most of our uh, illusions about our ability to reform people or deter others taken away. Uh, our penal systems just don't do that. And so, for the most part, utilitarians today argue for the preventative or quarantine view of punishment. They want to protect society from further misdeeds by the person, so you, you lock him up. But totally apart from the popularity or uh, uh, unpopularity of some of these views, I want to criticize the utilitarian approach. And my first criticism is that, now remember what we're doing, we're looking for a justification of legal punishment. I want to show you that this justification allows you to punish the innocent. Okay? If this alleged justification 
for legal punishment allows you to punish the innocent, then of course it's not a legitimate justification. How does it allow punishing the innocent? Well, first of all, think about reforming the criminal. If your goal is to reform the criminal, it would seem quite justified. Indeed, it might even seem better to punish him before he commits a crime rather than after he commits a crime. I mean, if the psychologists have let you know that some guy, you know, has got a, a certain personality that's, you know, tending toward this, that, or the other, uh, it would be much better to have people taken away by the psychologist and reformed prior to uh, their misdeeds rather than after. But you see, when you punish a man prior to his breaking of any social law, what you're actually doing is punishing the innocent. You presume that he will become guilty, but you have punished the innocent nonetheless. Well, how about the deterrence view of punishment? Well, if you simply want to deter other people, you can still punish, in it, punish innocent men as long as the society thinks that the man is guilty. Okay, so if you take some innocent person, string him up, as they say, and tell the people it's because he was the one out raping women, he was the hillside strangler or what have you, then people will say, wow, look what happens to people like that, and they'll be deterred from doing it. And yet, it's irrelevant to you whether the man was guilty or not. The main thing is that you have deterred others from doing it. Don't you see, if you want to scare people to deter them from, from committing crimes, it's irrelevant to you whether the people you scare them with, that is, the people you execute or punish, are guilty or innocent. So this, too, allows you to punish the innocent, and I dare say that is intuitively immoral to do so. And finally, the preventative use of punishment, or the quarantine view of punishment, that says you lock up people to stop them from committing further crimes, um, well, in answer to that, it seems to me you can accomplish the same ends much more effectively by uh, torturing a man's wife and children than by locking him up. In other words, if you want to prevent him from committing crimes, I dare say that you'll get a lot further. You see, you lock up some people that get, you know, rather mad about it and angry at society, and they feel that they've been unjustly treated, and they tend to try to break out or get out in some way, and they don't really, um, uh, they're not kept from from hurting others again. But uh, if they know that every time they commit a misdeed, their loved ones are going to suffer for it, that will get you a lot further. But you see, their loved ones are not guilty of anything. And so all three of these theories, if taken seriously, justify punishing the innocent in one form or another. Moreover, now this is my second criticism. That, that is a uh, three-part criticism that says these views justify the punishment of the innocent. Secondly, these views of punishment would exempt crimes which are committed in passion from needing any punishment, possibly. Crimes committed in passion would not necessarily have to be punished. There are some murderers who need no reform. I think you need to recognize that because they have no future tendency to kill people. A man kills his one and only enemy on earth, you see, there's no reason to reform him because there's nobody else that he has any grudge against anyway. Um, And in that sense, there's no prevention also, because there may be no future objects of his wrath, uh, perhaps. <coughs> Moreover, in a genuine crime of passion, the question of deterrence is totally irrelevant, because in what is legally called a crime of passion, there is no calculation, or no reasonable calculation of consequences. That is, um, somebody in a bar some night gets offended and just loses his head and, and strikes out against the person who said whatever was said and kills him. It wasn't because he, he sat down and said, you know, I'm really so mad at this guy. I'll tell you what I'm going to do to him. I'm going to wipe him out. 
and then you go about, you know, it, there's a calculation and all that sort of thing, where allegedly he could say, but if I do that and I get caught, there's this. Okay, so there's no deliberation and calculation, it's just a crime of passion. Now, you may want to argue there are no strict crimes of passion in that sense, but to the degree that there are, to that degree, utilitarian theories of punishment are totally irrelevant, because they depend upon the calculation of consequences. Thirdly, and I think very importantly, utilitarian theories of punishment do not amount to punishment at all but amount to social hygiene. This is not, strictly speaking, punishment. You see, utilitarian theories overlook the fact that, pu that punishment is not for the sake of future results. Punishment is not future-looking. Punishment is always because of past offenses. So you must always tie punishment to the commission of a crime. And that's why you punish people, not in order to accomplish something in the future, not into future results. Moreover, utilitarian theories forget that the character of the man, his motives, are irrelevant to public law. We don't want to enforce private morality. We only want to punish those who have committed past crimes against the set of public rules. Now, all of us need reforming, don't we? To the degree you hold to a reformational view of punishment, then you must also hold that we all should be punished. C.S. Lewis pointed out in an article which I recommend very highly that you read, one of the most brilliant pieces of, uh, of uh, Christian ethical writing as a polemic against secular theories that's been done in this century. Lewis wrote a short article entitled The Utilitarian, I'm sorry, The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, in which he argues that this theory of punishment used by those who want to reform criminals or deter others and so forth seems so humanitarian on the surface, seems so well-meaning and so kind. And he says, but in point of fact, it is cruel and unusual and unjust. Lewis says that if you have a humanitarian theory of punishment, what you end up with are not uh, judges and uh, executioners, but social engineers. And this allegedly humanitarian theory could presumably turn society over to a team of psychological manipulators, and then anyone that they think is in need of reformation can be taken off against his will for no breach of law for an indeterminable amount of time under unguarded conditions and be what they call reformed. Now, lest you think that he's just going to the extreme and saying, oh, well, yeah, it could come to that, but, you know, civilized men aren't going to do that sort of thing. Um, is anybody here familiar with Thomas Zazz's book, Prisoners of Psychology? Zazz is a devastating writer. He's a, he's a libertarian, and so I don't agree with everything he says by any means. But Zazz, uh, that's S-Z-A-Z, uh, points out that there are people in every state of this union that have uh, legitimization from the government to have people incarcerated against their will because they are deemed a psychological threat. As there are state officials, state psychologists, or men who are in private practice with a state seal that they can bring to bear in appropriate cases, that can say, because this person is deemed a hazard to society by me, the psychologist or psychiatrist, I want him taken and incarcerated in the mental institution until we believe that it's safe for him to come out. There are documented cases of men who, because of a grudge they had or the psychologist or a psychiatrist had, with them were incarcerated for over 12 years. And let me remind you that when you're taken to a mental institution, it, there's no appeal. 
That's not a system of justice whereby if you think you got a raw deal, then you can have your lawyer appeal it to a higher court and have it reviewed and that sort of thing. There is no review. You have no legal rights. You are deemed, you see, a threat to society. And until you are no longer a threat, you may not even have visiting privileges. C.S. Lewis warned long before this started happening in this country, uh, this situation discussed under Sazaz's uh, title of Prisoners of Psychology, that when you have the humanitarian theory of punishment, then anybody they think is in need of reformation can be taken off against his will for no breach of law for an indeterminable amount of time under unguarded conditions and be reformed. What if you don't want um, shock therapy used on you? But you see, if you're deemed in need of it, and it's against your will anyway, they will go ahead and put you through the process. Now, I, have a util I had a um, uh, libertarian professor, as you know, John Hosper is in, in, in grad school. I've referred to this in the past. And we were discussing this one day in class, and um, with all due seriousness um, and, and, and genuine gravity and sobriety, uh, Dr. Hosper has looked at us as graduate students, and he said, frankly, if you ever go to a cocktail party and one of these state psychologists is there, he says, you had best leave right then. Now, that wasn't exaggerated. I mean, he meant that in all seriousness. He said, it is, it is not for your good to be around anybody that has that kind of power. That because he gets miffed at you can simply, over his signature, have you picked up and put in a straitjacket and taken away. And all the cry for justice in the world will be falling on deaf ears because everybody thinks it's unjust to be in an institution. They expect you to say that sort of thing. I tell you, that's what utilitarianism with respect to penology leads to. Well, if you don't have utilitarian theory, what are you going to use? Well, secondly, there is what is called the retributivist approach to punishment. Retributivism. I think I've got it right. Now, the retributivist over against the utilitarian lays stress on the guilt of the offender and the just deserts that he has coming. That is, the retributivist doesn't look future to the consequences that can be... Um, brought about by punishment, but he looks back to the crime in order to justify the punishment. He says, we punish this man because he's a criminal. We punish him because he's committed a crime. He is punished only because he deserves it, not because of or in order to. I'm sorry, it's always because of, never in order to. I, I misread my notes there. We always punish him because of what he's done, not in order to accomplish something else. Of course, on this view, the intrinsic value of punishment is intuitively appreciated. But the problem with it is that, in the end, this amounts to a denial of the necessity to really justify punishment. That is, we intuit the intrinsic value of punishing men who break our social laws, but what we intuit there is simply that punishment is right. But we don't give the grounds for the rightness of the punishment. You see, the retributivist is saying, why do we punish? Because it's right to punish. But you see, that's the question. Why is it right to punish? And therefore, the retributivist, in the long run, argues in a circle or argues by appeals to intuition. And those who try to answer the question, those secularists who are retributivist in punishment, who try to answer the question, will surreptitiously bring in the beneficial results of punishment as their justification in the end. But to the degree they do that, what have they done? They become utilitarians, that's right. Well, retrib retribution, you say, may uh, look like a good idea over against the horrors of utilitarianism in penology. 
But retribution doesn't answer our question. So what are we left with? What's the third option? Well, I'm going to put up here what I call the theonomic view of penology. <laughs> and I do that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. What I really mean, of course, is the biblical view of penology. Um, I also, it's, it's not tongue-in-cheek to the extent that those who want a biblical view of punishment and are not theonomist, um, to that extent, I don't think they can give you an answer anyway. Because if you don't go to the law of God, you haven't got any instructions on punishment anyway. So, therefore, one must take a theonomic view of punishment. To be sure, punishment can have a deterrence value. It can have a reforming value, and it can have a protecting value, but none of those values alone can be the principle of punishment. The necessary component in all these cases is the concept of retribution, deserving to be punished. However, secular and autonomous retributivist theories either deny the necessity of justifying punishment or reduce it to disguised utilitarianism. Consequently, I would argue, and I've done so in a secular context, by the way, and I, I, I believe that you can sustain this argument, retribution can be salvaged only by appealing to the judge of all the earth. The only way you can have a retributivist theory of punishment is by having a religious authority that sanctions it. You must have a religious authority for engaging in punishment. There must be reason because God, the judge of all the earth, tells you. The reason must be that God, the judge of all the earth, tells you. You see, how do you decide on the severity of punishment? How do you make sure that the punishment is proportionate to the degree of the offense without God giving you that indication? You see, both retributivist and utilitarian theorists will agree that punishment ought to be appropriate to the crime. That is, they will say that. But how do you assess what is appropriate? What makes one offense more serious than another? How do you determine what kind of punishment is commensurate with the crime in question? Should rapists be raped? Murderers murdered? Thieves stolen from? Is that what retribution means? How much punishment should there be? Should killing somebody be a $50 fine or a $500 fine? Or should there be no financial fine at all? You see, you have to have a retributivist view of punishment, but secularists cannot give you a retributivist view of punishment. Therefore, in order to be just, man is again forced to rely on God's word. The judge of all the earth certainly judges justly. Genesis 18.25. While I'm turning to that, can somebody remind the class of the context of Genesis 18? What's going to happen in Genesis 19? Sodom is going to be destroyed. Okay, and Abraham is talking to God and trying to convince God not to do this, right? He says, will you really destroy the just with the wicked? And God says, well, Abraham, for the sake of, well, Abraham proposes for, you know, such and such a number. And then he reduces and reduces again. Genesis 18.25, in the very context of what is right and wrong, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked that so the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, for shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham knew he could, he could you see, discuss the, this view with God because he could expect God, the judge of all the earth, to do that which is right. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, in the Song of Moses, Moses uh, repeats the same sentiment where he says, 
the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. When God says, this is what you ought to do to such and such a criminal, the godly mind says, just and right is he. The rock, his work is perfect. There can be no iniquity found in him. No man can gainsay the justice of what the judge of all the earth says ought to be done to criminals. I hope you will keep that in mind when those of you who are uh, or are becoming um, theonomic in your perspective end up arguing matters of capital punishment for this, that, and the other. Um, in the end, you must remember that your opponent, the one who does not want to submit to that, and I suppose all of us at one time in our lives were opponents of that idea, so be gracious and patient for the person who is opposing it. But to the degree that a person opposes that, he is wittingly or unwittingly challenging the very justice of God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Can you question his sanctions? All right, to this point, I've argued that legal punishment must be morally justified, and therefore the issues of penology cannot be resolved at the most fundamental level without heeding the revealed word of God. <coughs> now what I'd like to do is rehearse for you what the word of God says about punishment. I, mean, I hope I've given you an apologetic for why the Bible should be our standard in this regard, and now I'd like to exposit the biblical view of punishment. And um, give you five points here, all with uh, numerous subpoints, but just so that you can keep up with the lecture. First of all, because judges and rulers must not pervert justice, they must obey God's law. I'm going to argue that because judges and rulers must not pervert justice, the Bible would say they must obey God's law. Now, my first sub-point is that justice must be maintained. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture here. Um, you might just try to jot down the references. First, justice must be maintained. And my second, I, what I'm going to do is a little balancing thing. I'm going to show that justice must be maintained and then point out that that means rulers must submit to God's law. Okay, so it's kind of a one-two punch in the argument, if you will. Justice must be maintained. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Proverbs 24, verses 24 and 25. All right. If you say to the wicked, you are righteous, then, of course, people will curse you. On the other hand, Proverbs 28, 4 says, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive with them. So if rulers are not to praise the wicked, Proverbs says they must keep the law of God, or else they will end up praising the wicked. Let me give you another indication of this one-two punch in Scripture. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Proverbs 21.15 The execution of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. Well, okay, if you're not going to call evil good and you're going to execute justice as a joy to the righteous, then listen to Proverbs 29. The king gives stability to the land by justice. But, that's Proverbs 29, verse 4, But evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. Proverbs 28, 5. And the fourth verse of Proverbs 20, uh, 28 says, Those who seek the Lord keep the law of God. You follow the argument? It goes like this. Evil men don't understand justice. Those who seek the Lord understand all things. Those who seek the Lord are those who keep the law. Therefore, evil men cannot keep the law and cannot be just. 
the righteous must rule by the law of God. Well, my first point then is because judges and rulers must not pervert justice, they must obey God's law. Please remember that I argue that on the basis of a cantata of scripture passages. I proof texted very fundamentalistically. People may not like that, but the alternative is saying, I'm going to argue against the word of God. My second point, this requires observing and enforcing certain sanctions. If you must obey the law of God so as not to pervert justice, then that will require observing and enforcing certain sanctions. I've already pointed out the public law is genuine law only if it's enforced through a political authority who applies appropriate sanctions against the infraction of a law. And you'll see in the Bible that God's word delivers a dual sanction against offenses because God is concerned, says the scriptures, for both personal holiness and social justice. And so there's a punishment on certain acts in, in terms of their sinfulness, and there's a punishment upon certain acts as well in terms of their criminality. That is, some have a dual sanction against them. A murderer will not only go to hell, but he should also be executed. That's a dual sanction, a punishment from God and a punishment from the state. Temporal penalties are inflicted by man on a criminal in order to guard justice, in order in society, that is to guard justice and order, whereas eternal penalties are inflicted by God alone on the sinner in order to guarantee his holiness and righteousness. Please remember here that the Old Testament, from which we get most of our penal code, the Old Testament recognized that eternal judgment would come from God, and yet it also required temporal punishments against certain offenses. I know people who say, well, in the New Testament, it's the threat of hell that is the punishment for criminals. But that isn't right, because the Old Testament had a doctrine of hell, unless you have a rather liberal view of the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught that, that criminals would go to hell, and it also called for civil punishments. Therefore, there ought to be civil punishments as well as eternal punishment today. My third point now. I've, I've argued, because judges and rulers must not pervert justice, they must obey God's law. My second point, that requires observing and enforcing certain sanctions. Thirdly, the principle of all scriptural penology, whether it is eternal or temporal, the principle of all scriptural penology is retribution and equity. Such penalties reflect the character of a just God, whether they be temporal or eternal. Okay. The principle of all scriptural penology is retribution and equity. Such penalties, whether eternal or temporal, reflect the character of a just God. God's word sets forth a retributive penal system where appropriate punishments are prescribed according to what crimes deserved. That is, they are weighed according to the gravity of the offense. Law violators are punished because they are guilty. They have specifiable penalties inflicted on them because they deserve that form of punishment. In short, in a biblical view, criminals undergo their just deserts. Their just deserts. Yes? What would be an ex equitable punishment? An equitable punishment? You said the retribution equity, please. What I mean is that the, that the punishment is proportionate to the crime. That criminals get no more and no less than they deserve. I'm coming down to say more about that. Uh, notice, these are subpoints. Now notice that retribution is the foundation of Christ's substitutionary atonement. If you don't believe that God's character calls for a retributive approach to punishment, there was no need for Christ to die. 
Salvation requires that righteousness and peace kiss each other, Psalm 89 says. And Galatians 3 says that Christ took the curse of the law upon himself, canceling the certificate of debt which was against us, Colossians 2. So contrary to those modern theologians who either deny the need for propitiation, saying that God is not wrathful, he does not de demand a penal satisfaction, and contrary to those modern theologians who propound a moral influence view of the atonement, retribution is at the very foundation of the substitutionary atonement. Note very well here that Christians who support the abolition of capital punishment in favor of a rehabilitation theory of penology often base their case on the view that our doctrine of God's retributive justice is wrong. They want to say you have the wrong view of God. They say God's gracious and renewing power is the theological context for answering questions about justice. Capital punishment, they say, denies the possibility of the individual's restoration and renewal, but the power of God's grace places no one beyond that possibility. Therefore, we ought not to execute anybody. You see, there are Christians who argue against capital punishment on those grounds. But you see, they deny the very foundation of Christian theology, the substitutionary atonement, the retribution that was required if Christ was going to save us when they argue in that way. Likewise, I've said retribution is the foundation of Christ's substitutionary atonement. I've said that because I want all Christians to agree with me. Right? If you buy that, and you must buy that if you really are an evangelical, Likewise, you must agree that all the penalties detailed in Scripture, even civil penalties, even temporal penalties, reflect the equity of God. For God always delivers an appropriate punishment for the nature of the offense. Social penalties in the Old Testament were based on an equitable standard of retribution, restitution, and compensation. They were not arbitrary. They are just as appropriate with respect to their sphere of reference, temporal society, as God's eternal punishment is appropriate with respect to its sphere of reference. And thus the Old Testament punishes a man according to his fault, quote-unquote, Deuteronomy 25.2. And the standard of Old Testament punishment is that even, equitable, proportionate standard, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a wound for a wound, a burning for a burning, a life for a life. Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25 is one place where that's found. The Old Testament punished a man, quote, according to his fault, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was always proportionate over against the surrounding cultures that had arbitrary punishments that would execute men for thievery, that would castrate men for sexual offenses. God always punishes according to the nature of the offense. In Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 2, we read that the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. The law spoken through angels, according to Acts 7.53, the word spoken through angels, is the law of God. And so Hebrews is saying the law of God proved unalterable. Remember that. You can't alter the law of God. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. Now, it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews here in chapter 2, that premise is foundational to the argument that we today must pay close attention to God's word if we want to escape his eternal damnation. You see, the equity of eternal damnation is proportionate to the equity of the civil crimes of the Old Testament. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, just so that you see now in context what is involved in denying the penal sanctions of the Old Testament. 
Hebrews 2, verse 2. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord was confirmed unto us by them that heard? How will we escape eternal damnation if we reject the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ? Don't you see that criminals in the Old Testament were punished appropriately? And if every Old Testament penalty was just, how much more will eternal damnation be just? Well, then again, you see, if you deny the foundation of the argument, you see, he's saying, if this is true in the lesser, how much more in the greater? And if you say, well, I don't buy that that's a just penalty in the lesser, then, of course, the greater falls as well. As controversial as my view is today, with patience, I hope that you will encourage people to think about the consequences that they deny. Not because it's my view. I hope because it's the view of Scripture. Retribution is the foundation of Christ's atonement. God does not ever punish in anything less than a retributive way. God never gives an unjust or unequitable punishment. It's always eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Men do not die unless they have done things worthy of death. Look at Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. One of the strongest, seems to me, arguments in favor of this view. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and then it goes on to say, and you hang him on a tree, so forth. If a man commits a crime worthy of death, Capital crimes in the Old Testament were not arbitrarily designated as such. They were not arbitrarily made matters of death. They were always such because they are worthy of death. That is striking language. This is what justice requires. And so, isn't it interesting that in the New Testament now, just for those of you who say, yeah, but you're arguing from the Old Testament, begging the question, in Acts 25.11, what does Paul say at his own trial about this matter? Remembering now the background of the Old Testament and all of this about God's justice, equity, things worthy of death, Paul says in Acts 25, verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer, would you um, note in your Bible, please, that that word wrongdoer is exactly the Greek form that you find in Romans 13, verse 4. The magistrate is an avenger of wrath against those who commit evil. Those who do evil, those who are wrongdoers, it's the same Greek form. Paul says, if then I am a wrongdoer, subject to the sword of the civil magistrate, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. There's apostolic sanction for the Old Testament penal code right there by the way who this is supportive argumentation who are Paul's accusers here Sanhedrin on what basis did they accuse him the law of God one more point to be made Paul says if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death please note that Paul doesn't say and if I have committed the only crime worthy of death today See, there are those who think only murder calls for the death penalty today. 
That was not the view of the Apostle Paul. He said, anything I've done is worthy of death. Rape, witchcraft, kidnapping, on and on. I refuse not to die. Greg? I think to collaborate that, that he wasn't simply going along with whatever the government said at that oh, time. That's right. You could take as an example Peter when he walked out of prison. That's right. Because he was about to get death and he knew he wasn't worthy of that, so he walked right on out. That's right. Um, that's a good point. A lot of people say that they believe in civil disobedience as long as you're willing to take the punishment for it. As you disobey the government, but when they punish you, you've got to take it. Um, and then others would say, I think as you're suggesting here, Paul was willing to take what they would give him then. But that isn't what he says. He says, if it's worthy of death, I refuse not to die. And when it was not worthy of death, as Greg has given us an example and there are others available, the apostles systematically resisted. They fled. You see, Peter was, in fact, uh, guilty of civil disobedience when he left prison. People aren't put in prison so they can just walk out. You're not supposed to leave prison. That's against the rules. But he did it nonetheless. All right. Now my fourth point. Civil the civil sanctions of God's law are necessary, which is to say they must be imposed. Now I'm going to argue against those who say, well, all right, theonomist, you can use those punishments, but you don't have to. That is, it may be legitimate, but it's not required. And I'm going to say, no, it's required. Proverbs 11.21 says, the punishment of a crime has to be certain. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. Deuteronomy 13, verse 11, and Deuteronomy 19, verses, verse 19, says that a crime must be punished in order that you purge the evil from among you. Now notice this, Deuteronomy 19.21, and it must be performed without mercy or pity, Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's a very important thing to remember. Magistrates may not show pity. They may not let the President of the United States off when he has committed crimes. Notice that I said when. I don't want to prejudice the case that may be in your mind. <laughs> but when even the President has committed crimes, no pity, no pardon, no reprieve. You know why? Because while that looks merciful on the surface, it is in fact a gross form of inequity. Because what happens is that people who appear before you that are your friends, they get off. People who have money get off. And people who are poor or black or somehow despised by you suffer the consequences. That is to show respect of persons. You know the old statue of justice blinded with her scales? That's a biblical concept. Justice is blind in society. It may not look upon who the offender is, but only weighs whether the offense was committed. And if it was, you shall not show pity. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. And so I therefore would argue that these are not optional penalties. They must be enforced. Okay, let's take that up in due order, all right? I believe I have it in my notes later, but if I don't, I, I will bring it in. Yeah, I do. Uh, let, me, let me come back to that in, in the place in the outline, okay? Martin Luther put it this way, If God will have wrath, what business do you, the magistrate, have being merciful? What a fine mercy to me it would be to have mercy on the thief and murderer and let him kill, abuse, and rob me. 
that's a fine form of mercy. You let criminals do whatever they want to me and my family. That's not mercy to me. Okay. It's not in my notes. I believe you will find that, however, in Theonomy. It's a quote from my book, come to think of it. So if you look, have to do a little searching. Um, just look under Martin Luther in the, in the index. I trust you'll find it quickly. My fifth point, we're running out of time quickly, is that sanctions in society are imposed by man, ordained by God for this purpose. Sanctions in society are imposed by man, ordained by God for this purpose. It is clear in the New Testament that civil punishment is still needed. It's a proper use of God's law to use it with respect to civil punishment. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 10. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing that the law was not enacted for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, fornicators, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Paul is dealing here with the law's external function of restraint, listing those laws of which human law can take cognizance and can be used against criminal offenders. In Genesis 9, verse 6, we find the explanation for the human infliction of the death penalty. Genesis 9, verse 6. I, for one, am, am not one of the interpreters that thinks that Genesis 9 is giving a unique rationale for the execution of murderers, but is in fact giving the rationale for the execution of anybody God says to be executed. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Notice the conspicuousness of the words, by man shall his blood be shed. You see, the phrase by man, according to Von Rod, answers the very important question about whether man is at all justified in killing another man or whether God has reserved this for himself. God will not avenge murder, but he empowers man to do it. And so the phrase, for in the image of God made he man, explains why by man another man's blood shall now be shed. Remember the context. Verse 5 has said, And surely your blood, the blood of your lives, will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of man, even at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. God says, I require the life. Then he goes right on to say, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And one asks, now wait a minute, if God is requiring this, is vengeance, if vengeance is the Lord, why is he having man repay? And the answer is because in the image of God made he man. Because man is God's image, he has the right to follow God's word and to take the life of another man at God's instruction. In Romans 13, verse 4, finally, you'll notice that penal sanctions are to be imposed by authorities who have been ordained of God for that purpose. Paul says in 13.4 that the magistrate is a minister of God, ordained by God, and thus responsible to God. He says he is an avenger who brings wrath. In chapter 12, verse 19, God has said, Avenge not yourselves, for vengeance is mine, I will repay. You go down to the next chapter, just a few verses, and Paul says, The magistrate is an avenger of wrath. And you have any question whose wrath he avenges? It's God's wrath he avenges. And who does he avenge God's wrath upon as the minister of God ordained by God so that his sword is not used in vain? Upon the one who practices evil. Verse 10 of Romans 13 says that love works no evil because it fulfills the law. 
clearly the law and evil are set over against each other in God's think uh, in, in Paul's thinking here. So the one who practices evil is the one who violates God's law. And so, Paul says in Romans 13:4 that the magistrate is ordained by God as a minister of God to avenge wrath against the one practicing evil and to the very point of death. He bears not the sword in vain. Okay, my conclusion then about pen, uh, legal punishment having to be justified by the word of God is that when you study the penology of Scripture, all of the penal sanctions of the Old Testament are binding today. Of course, that's just what you would expect, seeing as that Jesus said every jot and tittle of the law is binding. But I think we have shown, not totally apart from using that Scripture passage, that that's what uh, biblical theology requires if you study Old and New Testaments on penology. One confirmatory evidence of this, and then we'll break. Notice Ezra's praise of Artaxerxes in the Old Testament. Artaxerxes said that Ezra was to go and to have the wisdom of God enforced. Quote, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God. And you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death, or for banishment, or for confiscation of goods, or for imprisonment. Ezra 7, verses 25 and 6. A pagan emperor says, let the law of God be enforced, even to the point of death, in all the area round about. And thus Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and 8 said, What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? For this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise in understanding. Let's have a break.